As you're opening your Bible, I'm going to share with you just a little story. It's almost 20 years ago now, almost exactly 20 years ago, that I first stepped foot on the yellow footprints in San Diego, California, and changed my life, probably for the better. Uh, If you've never been to boot camp, it's lovely. The accommodations are great. The staff is friendly. You should definitely go. You'll have a great time. Uh, There's all kinds of fun activities you get to do. One of those activities in particular was uh, particularly exciting. Uh, A culminating event at boot camp is you have to go down the rappelling tower. If you've never done that, which I had not done. It's a 70-foot tall tower, uh, and you are wrapped up in a rope and a harness and a helmet, and you get to go down the side of it. Now, if you don't like heights, that's not the most exciting and wonderful experience of your life. Uh, I'm not ashamed to admit to you, although I was then, but not now. 20 years later, I've kind of dealt with it. Uh, I'm not ashamed to admit to you that uh, I got to the top of that tower, and I was just a bit I think the technical term is petrified. Uh, I was having a rough moment up there in the top of this tower. And you get to the edge, and you look down, and you realize, hey, things can go real sideways real fast from this tall. Uh, And they had given me all the training. I knew what to do. I knew how the helmet worked. I knew how the rope worked. You know, I knew how to break. I knew how to go. I knew that kind of thing. Um, But there was one thing, one little thing that gave me confidence to go over the edge. I looked down, and there at the bottom... There's another guy, and he's holding the rope. He's on belay. That's what they call it. And I knew that if I completely lost my mind and forgot what I was doing, that that guy was holding the other end of the rope, and he would keep me from falling. And that gave me the confidence to lean out over the edge, 70 feet in the air, and walk gingerly down the side of this rappelling tower. I don't want you to think I was Rambo or anything. That reminds me of a very famous quote. It comes from the 18th century, uh, from the Baptist Mission Society, if you've heard of them. The Baptist Mission Society was uh, an organization in England that uh, launched the modern missions movement. Uh, And the gentleman, the, the, the most important Baptist you've never heard of, Andrew Fuller, is, is probably the, the most significant figure in Baptist mission history, and he never went. He never went out on a mission trip. He did, however, preach a sermon. He preached a sermon on the Great Commission that was titled, The Nature and Importance of Walking by Faith, which is not the most you know, like attention-grabbing title, but this is from the guy who said how God builds a sinning church, so I got no room to talk about Andrew Fuller. Andrew Fuller got up and he preached a sermon on the Great Commission. And in the congregation that morning was a gentleman named Uh, William Carey. And William Carey heard this sermon on the Great Commission, and he stood up and said, I will go. William Carey left everything and went to India to be a missionary. This sermon literally launched a thousand missionary journeys. And after that day, Andrew Fuller committed his life to supporting mission work. Andrew Fuller, this is the 18th and 19th century, he spent 10 hours a day, every day for the rest of his life, corresponding with missionaries or writing publications for the Baptist Mission Society to to publish so that people knew what was going on around the world and through their missionaries. 
He would take three months a year, not as a sabbatical, but to go on a fundraising uh, trip around uh, all of England, all of Scotland, all of Ireland, and he would go and raise funds for these missionaries who were out in India and in Africa and uh, all over the world. And he did that uh, for the next 31 years. And this is why Andrew Fuller did that, 10 hours a day, on top of pastoring. Because when William Carey stood up, this is what he said. I will go to India if you will hold the other end of the rope. And Andrew Fuller held it. For 31 years, he held it. Here's a quote you'll hear a few times. I love it. It comes from Paul Washer. He says this, Every Christian is called to missions either as a goer or a sender. And that is true, because the Great Commission, that, that passage that uh, Andrew Fuller preached that Sunday morning, that, uh, that missionary meeting morning, is a standing order for every Christian. All of us are called to obey the Great Commission and to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that Jesus Christ commanded us. That is for every one of us here. And that means because every Christian is called to missions, every church is called to be a sending church. Every one of us, including Grace Fellowship Church, is called by God to be a sending church, to be commissioning and launching missionaries. But the thing is, it's not individual churches that get together enough chutzpah and enough, you know, uh, verve and energy with well-mustached gentlemen at the front giving them pep talks about going out and, and holding ropes that gets that to happen. We don't build sending churches. God builds sending churches. And this is how He does it. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3 and get a picture of how God builds ascending church. So, if you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to look at it now. We'll just be reading the first three verses. God's Word reads as follows, Now, there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Thus reads the word of the living God. Antioch was ascending church, and God built it that way. If you're not familiar with Antioch, Antioch was... Uh, you know, at this time, a, a multi-hundred-year city was founded in like 300 B.C. It was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, and it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a, a big deal. It was a happening place. In fact, in my opinion, it's not unlike the Washington, D.C. and northern Virginia area. It was a, a melting pot of cultures. Uh, everyone from the, the Roman and Greek West would converge in Antioch, and everyone from the, uh, uh, the Semitic and Persian and Arab East would meet there, and, and so all the cultures kind of blended together. And not unlike Northern Virginia, it was a place known for debauchery. 
This is uh, not a, a, a good place to be. There were uh, 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 temples to Daphne and temples to Apollos, and there was a, a great circus for the chariot races that could hold uh, 800 or 80,000 people at a time. It was kind of like the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire. Like, what happened in Antioch stayed in Antioch. It was a place that was known for culture and commerce and carnality. It was very wealthy, but it was also uh, very wicked. And it was there that God planted this church. And in fact, this church in Antioch became like a key city for Christianity. This was Paul's home base. It became a missions hub, launching missionaries uh, all across the Roman Empire, all across the world. This is where Barnabas and Paul and Peter, and then later men like Ignatius and Theophilus and Theodore and John Chrysostom, they were all based out of Antioch. It was in Antioch that Christians were first called Christians, probably as a derogatory term. It was probably meant to belittle the Christians and and shame them. The Christians picked that up and wore it as a badge of honor. And we know how they came to be called Christians because in Antioch you see Christians acting like Christ. It's a pretty unremarkable thing. The surprising part of Jesus building His church in Antioch is how unsurprisingly He does it. It's just Christians being Christians. That's how the church in Antioch grew. Christians who went out and evangelized the lost. Antioch wasn't planted by a well-known pastor. It was just regular Christians, no-name Christians, Christians whose names are not written in this book, but in the Lamb's Book of Life, who went out and told their neighbors and their co-workers and their fellow slaves and their fellow slave masters all about Jesus and His salvation on the cross. It was Christians encouraging Christians. It was Christians edifying Christians. It was just Christians being Christians. But God was at work in Antioch. And God was turning this very normal church into a sending church. And that's what we see here in three verses, three marks of a sending church. And they'll go quickly. The first way that God is at work to make a church a sending church is by giving them an abundance of teachers. Look again at verse 1. Now, there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers. Two terms used to describe the teaching ministry going on in Antioch, prophets and teachers. And there's a little bit of a difference between those things. Prophet is this idea of being a spokesman, about being a proclaimer, Uh, A prophecy was a a revelatory ministry. It was an exhortative ministry. Uh, You read about prophets in the book of Acts, like in chapter 11. You meet a guy named Agabus who receives a word from the Lord, and he proclaims there's going to be a famine that covers the entire world. We should plan for that. Prophets that you read about here in Antioch, these are men just like the Old Testament prophets. The word of the Lord would come to them, and they would go to declare it to the people. Now, our situation's a little different than that. The canon has been closed. There's no longer new revelation that's being offered. So, the prophetic office has ceased. We don't have prophets anymore in the church, but the prophetic work, the role of exhorting the congregation remained in the church, which is why if you pick up any of the Puritans and uh, you read them, they're going to talk about prophecy as preaching. And that's still going on in the church today. 
So God blesses Antioch with these prophets, these men who would stand. They probably didn't have pulpits, certainly not as nice as this one, but they would, they would stand in front of the congregation. They would declare what God has revealed to them so that they could follow it and obey it and, and be transformed by it. But God gave Antioch not only prophets, He also gave them teachers. These are men who were explainers. They were instructors. They were, they were Scripture-based ministries. If the prophet would say, the word of the Lord came to me, the teacher would say, the word of the Lord is open before me, and I read it to you now, what Isaiah says, what Moses says, what David says. They were explainers of God's word, and Antioch had both of them. And and I don't want to draw a hard, fast boundary between men who were prophets and men who were teachers. Certainly, there's a lot of blurring of that line. Paul did both of those things, did he not? But it is important to recognize that the church needs both of these kinds of teachers. We need preachers and professors. We need exhorters and informers. Because we need teaching that's aimed at our minds, that will engage us uh, right here between our ears and cause us to think more clearly and understand more clearly. Uh, we need men that are, are blessed and gifted by God who can stand up and instruct and inform and correct and teach. Uh, we need uh, God and His Spirit to be at work in men who will make connections in the Scripture and make clear to us the Word of God. But we also need preaching that's aimed at our hearts. We need encouragers, implorers, uh, men who excite us and exhort us and rebuke us. Yes, we need men who will open the Bible and walk methodically through it, making connections and making things clear, but we need men who will stand at the front, who who will make corrections and make urgent to us the Word of God. And of course, in its ideal setting, these things come together. That, that men preach and teach, that they profess and they explain. In the ideal setting, we have what uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones would describe, logic on fire. Men who, who have uh, been set aflame by God's truth, and it's infected their hearts and inflamed their hearts and causes them not only to understand but to explain with passion. The church needs both of those kinds of ministries. And praise God that you have that here at Grace Fellowship. You have Chris who will come up and open God's Word and and proclaim it to you. And you have Bible studies and you have Sunday school classes where you'll walk through books methodically and and, and learn and grow. We have thinking that needs to be corrected. We have hearts that grow dead and cold that need to be inflamed. And that's the work that God is doing to prepare this church to be a sending church. But you see, not only does God bless them with an abundance of teachers in style. He blesses them with an abundance of teachers in actual quantity and quality. Look at the list again. There's Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. There's actual diversity in their teaching team, and not just the kind of like buzzword, Machiavellian, marketing ploy kind of diversity. Uh, but the real manifold glory of God that reaches out to all men and all people in all places and brings them together. I mean, just look at the list a little more carefully. You have Barnabas. And if you've read the book of Acts, you're familiar with Barnabas. He's a, a Hellenistic Jew who was a, a wealthy man who was known for being an encourager. In fact, Barnabas wasn't his real name. It was a nickname. 
His real name was Joseph. His nickname was Son of Encouragement. He was a man who would come up and with that fatherly affection, wrap his arms around the church at Antioch and wrap his arms around the Christians and explain to them the way a father would explain to his children what God has said and what they need to do. You have Simeon here who's called Niger. He's probably a dark-skinned African saint. Uh, Maybe he knew the Ethiopian eunuch. Who knows? But he's there and he's preaching God's Word from a totally different culture. You've got Lucius here who's from Cyrene. He's probably a former slave from the, the synagogue of the Cyrenian freedmen that had gotten Stephen killed. You got Menaean, who's maybe the most fascinating guy on this list. He says he was raised with Herod Antipas, who, Herod the Tetrarch, who was, meant he was either his very close friend or it meant he was like a half-brother of his. People disagree on what that actually meant, but here's what you did know. The guy was nobility. Now, I like to imagine Menaean walking around with a popped collar, you know, and his dad definitely bought him like a, a Lexus chariot kind of guy. Like, he was that guy. But God saved him and gave him his Holy Spirit who empowered him to preach and to teach. And, of course, you've got Saul, the most famous on the list from our end. He's a diaspora Jew from Tarsus. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was of the tribe of Benjamin as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal. He was a persecutor of the church. You know, he was a rabbinical student who studied under Gamaliel, who was the the most famous of the respected, famous rabbis at his time. Uh, Let's just say it. Saul was a nerd. I mean, that's just what he was. He was like at the Harvard Law School version of preaching and teaching. You could not have a more motley crew of teachers, could you? Slaves and preppies and and, and good Jewish kids and guys from out in the wilderness and and guys from different cultures and different cities and different locations and different economic groups. All kinds of different backgrounds, but the same salvation, the same Lord, the same Spirit, the same gospel, the same message— the same gifting. There's thousands of people in the church at Antioch at this time, but only a handful of them have been gifted to preach and teach. Not many should be teachers. But this is the first way you see God at work building Antioch into being ascending church. He gives them teachers. Ascending church must be a taught church, a church that is strong in truth, that is firmly established. You want to know that the folks holding the rope for their missionaries have a strong grip and firm footing. Have you ever been in a tug of war? I watched a delightful YouTube video recently of a tug of war between the United States Marine Corps and the United States Air Force. I won't tell you who won. But I can tell you it was the guys with a stronger grip and better footing that held onto that rope tighter and destroyed the uh, Air Force. So (laughs) what I'm saying to you is this is the first way God's at work building a church. And isn't it very normal giving them teachers who love God's Word, who open it up? You should do everything you can to support the teaching ministry of the church. I think for some folks, that means discovering if you're gifted to preach and teach. Perhaps you are. 
God always gifts his church with exactly what it needs, and some of you are going to be gifted to be teachers, and some of you are going to be gifted to be preachers. I did not want to preach for years. Uh, I was just a, 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 a poor little Marine, minding my business, hanging out at the Pentagon, and my pastor here asked me to preach a sermon, and I gave him the Heisman stiff arm for a full year. You got the wrong guy, pal. Not me. And then one day, my, my pastor said to me, hey, Alex, this is your Sunday, and this is your passage. You're going to write a sermon. If you don't, we're going to stare at each other awkwardly for 30 minutes. I'm going to tell everybody it's your fault. I said, okay, well, how do you write a sermon? And he sat down with me and taught me how to do that. And maybe that's you. Maybe God has saved you by his son's death on the cross and regenerated you and gifted you by his Holy Spirit with the gift of preaching and teaching. And if so, you need to step up for the church. Maybe you support the ministry of teaching at your church, not by being gifted to be a teacher, not many should become teachers, James says, but by serving in the church. Do you remember the problem in Acts chapter 6? The church was getting bigger, the church had logistic issues, and uh, there were widows that weren't being fed, there were, there were uh, things that weren't getting done, and so how was the church solved that problem? By identifying deacons and calling them to serve the church, not by filling a pulpit, not by opening a book, not by speaking, but by serving. And that allowed the, the men who were gifted by God, the apostles at that time, the, the elders and the teachers now, that allows them to, to set their time aside and, and devote it to teaching God's Word. Do you want to serve the church in teaching and preaching, but you're not gifted? Help around. Organize the prayer chain. Work with Operation Christmas Child. Free up Chris and your elders to study God's Word. And, of course, the most important way that you can participate in the teaching ministry of the church, whether you're gifted or not, is to attend faithfully and, and to listen carefully and then to apply it in your own life. And when you do that, God is at work in this church, transforming it, sanctifying it, growing you individually and growing you corporately into being the kind of church He uses to send missionaries and fulfill His great commission. And that's the first way that God is at work building the church, by equipping it with a host of teachers. The second thing you see is in verse 2. God builds sending churches by calling missionaries. Verse 2, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. You know what you see in verse 2? A very normal church doing very normal things. It's a remarkably unremarkable church. It says they're doing two things here, ministering to the Lord and fasting. Ministering is just a, a, a word, liturgeo. It just means where we get the word liturgy from. It just means serving. Three times that word shows up in the New Testament. Once is right here. Once is in Romans 15, 27, where it just means serving. It just means going out and serving in the church. And once you find uh, the author of Hebrews uses it to talk about the priests who would get up there and minister daily to offer sacrifices. Here's what it means. It's not complicated. It just means doing normal church stuff. Do you know what the church in Antioch was doing? Crazy things like praying together, reading the Scriptures together, teaching the Bible. You know what they were doing? Serving communion. They were serving tables. They were printing bulletins, and someone had the gift of making coffee, I'm sure. I'm just kidding. They didn't have coffee. Could you imagine if Paul had coffee? The Bible would be three times longer, right? But it was just Christians doing Christian things as they gathered together. 
playing the cajon and playing the piano and, and, and printing off the, the lyrics for the songs. It was just Christians vacuuming the carpets and serving in the nursery, ministering to the Lord. And in addition to that, he says they were fasting. You guys know what fasting is. It's just abstaining from food for a period of time. Fasting is not prescribed in the Bible. It is permitted in the Bible. In fact, some people make far too much out of fasting. If anything, the New Testament tells us that we should not be preoccupied with food. It should not be the thing that consumes our thoughts, our consumption of it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, food will not commend us to God. We're neither the worse if we don't eat nor the better if we do. It doesn't matter, he says. 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says that asceticism is the doctrine of demons. Intentionally, willfully buffeting your body in order to gain spiritual enlightenment, that's what demons do, he says. In Romans 14, Paul says the kingdom of God is not about eating or drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Fasting is not required, but it's certainly appropriate at times for Christians. Fasting is associated with mourning, especially people mourning over their sin. The most common way fasting is associated in the Bible is with believers who become aware of the fact that they've sinned against God, that they deserve condemnation, they deserve punishment, and in remorse and in sadness over their sin, they, they, they abstain from food from a period of time uh, in brokenness and contrition. That's an appropriate way to use fasting. Fasting is associated with Christians who are concerned about a trial, about a circumstance, a difficult thing that's coming up. You read about in the book of Esther, right? She tells Mordecai and the Jews to fast for three days as she prepares to go and talk to her husband, the king, about the outcome of the Jews, and they fast. That's an appropriate way to use fasting. Fasting is an appropriate response in the Bible to grief and to sadness. We read about David after his sin with Bathsheba, and after it's discovered, he fasts over the death of his child. Fasting is not associated with gaining some higher spiritual insights. In fact, the regular practice of fasting is, is, is demeaned by those who use it hypocritically. Fasting is fine as long as it's paired with prayer as it is here in Acts chapter 13. So this is what you have in chapter 2. Or in chapter 13, verse 2, just a normal church doing normal church things, gathering on a Sunday and worshiping God. But God does extraordinary things through ordinary churches. And in this church, He's going to call two missionaries who will launch the greatest evangelistic campaign the world has ever seen, just in a church doing normal things. Because what God does in every church is call missionaries. And that's what he does here. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, how does he call these missionaries? It doesn't actually say specifically. Maybe it was an audible voice. They were, they were just, you know, fasting, and they were praying, and they were reading their Bibles, and they heard, set apart for me Paul, Saul. I meant Saul. He's not Paul yet. Set apart for me Saul and Barnabas. Maybe. I don't think so. Probably it was through one of the prophets who received a word from the Lord, from the Holy Spirit, and said, hey, these are the men uh, that you should set aside. And here's what you know. It doesn't matter whether it was an audible voice. It doesn't matter whether it was through a prophet. Here's the point. The point is that God took divine initiative to call missionaries. Set aside the men that I have chosen for my work that I will give to them. 
And it is absolutely work that they were called to. Missions is work. And they're already working in Antioch. You've got to imagine, you know, Saul's up there breaking a sweat, and Barnabas is giving everybody a hug, because that's Barnabas. You know, he's side-hug Barnabas up there, just talking to everybody and encouraging them with the Scriptures. And then Paul's down there, you know, leading the Bible study through Leviticus, like, guys, this wave offering, very important, you know. You know, notes in the margin kind of thing. But then God gives them a unique and particular mission to fulfill. He, he places in them a, a burden to travel across Asia Minor and across Europe to bring the gospel to unreached peoples, what we would today call frontier missions work. They were out there with people who have never heard the gospel, have never heard that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins, have never heard that by faith they can be rescued from a, a eternal condemnation, and they get this burden to go and, and preach. I've had the privilege of knowing folks with this kind of burden, this kind of calling to go do missions work. A friend of mine named Davis who is translating the Bible in, in Central Africa. A friend of mine named Christine who's out uh, doing medical missions work uh, out in Central Africa. I have a friend of mine named Jordan who is on the frontier of Rome, Italy, uh, and is sharing the gospel with Roman Catholics uh, left and right and probably eating a ton of pasta while he does it. We all have different crosses to bear, right? But the thing is, you don't go on the mission field on a lark. You don't go for a great vacation. You're leaving everything you have behind. You're selling your home, and you're selling your car, and you're quitting your job, and you're trusting that God is going to provide what you need on the way while you commit yourselves fully and wholeheartedly to gospel work. And God is still calling missionaries today. God is calling missionaries in Grace Fellowship Church because every Christian is called to missions and every church is called to be a sending church. He's doing it right now. And you might ask, okay, how do I know? I mean, Saul and Barnabas had some form of direct, audible, by-name call from the Holy Spirit. Like, you couldn't decline that. But how do I know? Now I would just say you should ask yourself some questions. Do you have the aspiration has God placed this burden on your heart? When you sing a song like, by faith, do you go, man, I, I should go. I, I want to be that guy. When you sing a song like, here I am, send me, do you go, man, I, I need to be sent. I need to go. Do you have that aspiration? I would ask, do you have the aptitude? Can you do missions work? God gifts all kinds of people to His church with all kinds of gifts to build and equip and serve and have you been called to do evangelistic missions work? Have you been called to, to plant churches, to open the Bible, to share the gospel with folks from different cultures? Do you learn languages quickly? Do you understand well? Do you explain well? Do you have the aptitude and the gifting for this? And finally, I would ask, do you have affirmation? You know, do your friends and your church members and your pastor think, hey, I think maybe you should be called to this? Or if you were to come up to, to Chris next week and say, hey, Alex preached a thing about missions work, and I think I should go, and Chris goes, yeah, you want to go. Well, let's, let's talk. Um, is that you, or does he go, absolutely, that's the most, that makes the most sense I've ever heard in my life. And not only do you get affirmation from your friends and your coworkers and your, your congregation members and your pastors, are you getting affirmation from the Holy Spirit? In your wake, is there a, 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 a list of converts behind you? As you make your way through this life and, and go to work and, and, and go home and, and meet your neighbors, are people hearing about Jesus and coming to faith? 
Maybe you're called to be a mission. Maybe you're called to, to go and, and do missions work. And missions work doesn't have to be in Central Africa or Rome, Italy, or across Asia Minor. Maybe you're called to set aside your, your vocation to be dedicated to the Great Commission. Maybe that's you. The thing is, everyone is called to missions, and some of you are called to go. And if that's you, go. And some of us are called to send. And that's what you see in verse 3, the sending part of a sending church. Verse 3, then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. What you see here, the, the third way that God is at work in a church to make it a sending church is with what I would call prayerful commissioning. He gives them an abundance of teachers. He gives them missionaries that are called. And then He gives them a church that prayerfully commissions them and sends them out. The local church is commissioning them. Again, two things happen here. When they had prayed and fasted, I think they're seeking confirmation of the prophetic utterance. I think the most likely way that Saul and Barnabas were called is that a prophet of Jesus Christ received a word from the Lord by the Holy Spirit and said, Saul, Barnabas, the Holy Spirit has revealed to me, you are called to go to missions. You're supposed to leave Antioch and go. First Corinthians says the spirit of prophets were subject to prophets, so I think all of these men, this, uh, Barnabas and Simeon and Lucius and Manaean and Saul gathered and prayed and sought God's confirmation. And when they were confident that this was what God had set Barnabas and Saul apart for, I imagine they then began to pray for the work itself. God, you've called them to this. Bless it. And we should be praying for missionaries. I hope it's a regular part of your corporate church life. I hope it's a regular part of your personal devotional life. We have our daughters, no missionaries by name, and pray for them when they do their devotions. I encourage you to do the same. But how do you pray for missionaries? I mean, my default setting, my, my initial thought when I want to pray for a missionary is God, keep them safe. God, give them money. Right? That's how I tend to pray. Do you know how Paul asks the church to pray for him? You see it throughout his letters. These are the kinds of things that Paul asks sending churches to pray for. God, grant clarity in proclamation, like in Colossians 4 that I may be clear as I ought to speak. God, give me boldness in proclamation as He does in Ephesians 6, chapter 20, that I would boldly proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to those who don't really want to hear it. God, give me wisdom in my proclamation as He does in Ephesians 6, 19, that I may be wise with my speech, that it would be uh, gracious and seasoned with salt, He says in Colossians chapter 4. God, grant me open doors for my proclamation in Colossians chapter 4, that God may open a door to us through the ministry of the Word. He asked that they would pray for conversions, that the gospel proclamation would be successful in 2 Thessalonians. And finally, He asks that they would pray for fellowship with the saints. Do you want to know how to pray for your missionaries who are out around the world, around the United States, around North America, around the globe? Pray for these things that God would make them clear, wise, bold, successful proclaimers of the gospel to a lost world that needs to hear it, and pray that they'll be refreshed by the communion of saints. 
And then after praying and fasting and seeking God's will, they laid their hands on them and they sent them away. They ordained them to this work. They commissioned them to this work. And in so doing, and you've probably seen this before, the elders of a church would gather together with the missionaries in front and they would lay their hands on them and they would pray for them and they would send them out into the work that God had called them to do. And what they're doing in that moment is saying, we are with you. You are not going out alone. As you go into the world to do the work that God has given you, you go with our blessing and with God's blessing, and we want you to know that we won't let go of the rope. Can you imagine what an important and necessary encouragement and reminder that is for Christians right now in Ukraine? For missions who are who are working and, and, and preaching the gospel as, as bombs are being dropped around their home? Can you imagine what an encouragement is for missionaries and pastors in Indonesia who are having their churches attacked and set on fire to know that back home there are Christians praying for them and supporting them financially and supporting them uh, uh, with, with words of encouragement and by bringing them before the throne of God? It's part of what being a sending church is, and God is the one that builds sending churches because God is the one who gifts teachers to open the Word and preach. God is the one who gifts preachers to exhort their congregation to go. God is the one by the Holy Spirit who calls them by, by giving them a burden and a capacity and a gifting and a love for doing missions work. And God is the one who equips the church that sent them out to stand by them faithfully and support them as they go. We are all called the missions. Either you're out there on the far end of the rope in Fredericksburg or Frankfurt and you're doing gospel work, or you are called to be back here holding the rope, supporting them. But either way, you should have calluses on your hands. That's how it works. We're all called to missions. Let's pray. Almighty, gracious, and heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the example of your church in Antioch. We thank you for the work of Saul and Barnabas that you gave to them. Most of all, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who saved us with his death and resurrection and now gives us the, the privilege of serving him through missions. God, all through Fredericksburg and Northern Virginia and the United States and in every continent, there are men and women who are right now headed to hell and don't know of what your son has done. God, I pray that you'll be at work here in Grace Fellowship Church, that you'll be gifting them with preachers and teachers and calling missionaries and sending them out. I pray that on the day we are gathered around the throne in heaven, we will see to our left and to our right men and women who will spend eternity embracing the, the love and worship of their Savior through the missions that are supported here in Grace Fellowship Church. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.